the lie that poetry tells is constant as the truth itself without the lies and the false beliefs where would we be where would we be welcome to the state of the theory podcast i'm hannah and i'm an india and we are your theory doctors Hello. Hi there. Welcome back. Welcome back. Just... We dropped the ball a little bit. Yeah. Sorry we've been away so long. Things have been a bit hectic here. But hopefully we are back now. Yeah, the post-Brexit world is... The apocalypse has begun. Have you been collecting cans? Yeah. No. I should be. Bottles of water. <laughs> Guns? <laughs> Soon. 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 Um, yeah, no, we've we've had a had lots going on, so we we had a bit of a break. We've but, been away for personal reasons. Yes. Um, but we're back now, and we've got an interesting episode lined up, which is about what, Hannah? Um, some of the the events happening in the United States, specifically around land and resource management, and the right to protest. Um, the right to protest in so far as you guys have the right to protest until the 8th of November. Ye- presumably after that. Yeah, after that I will become a political refugee. Are you going to seek asylum in Britain? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yes. Moving on. We'll, we'll, we'll talk more about yeah, we'll we'll do some election episodes yes, next yes, week and the week after. Yes. Um, so, what are the two specific instances, incidents that we're looking at? Yeah, in the news, if you are liberal, left leaning like we are, they will be occupying a lot of space. I'm sure on your social media news feeds and um, on your home pages at the moment. First is the um, the massive protests happening in. Um, North Dakota, the Standing Rock region, um, protests against an oil pipeline. This is a, a, a the broader context, of course. There's multiple oil pipeline negotiations happening in North America. Canada also is experiencing its own context. We're talking about the American context because it's the one I know more about um, and because I have um, friends and students who are, are involved um, and connecting this, the internet has already done a good job of connecting this kind of issue to the Bundys. Um, last winter, the Bundy brothers, Clive and Bundy, his kids, um, led an armed takeover of a federal wildlife reserve in Oregon. Clive and Bundy is a cattle rancher in the West, in, like, Nevada, and um, has had a number of run-ins with the law around grazing permits and fees and basically land, um, access to federal land, and whether or not he should have to pay the federal government for that access. Um, The Bundys were acquitted yesterday of all charges that were brought against them. They... This was an armed takeover. They and their crew, 
Karen. followers, their people, cult, their gang, I, yeah, their friends, I, their cousins, I, I'm, um, they, it, it was a quite a violent, or it, the, it wasn't violent itself, but the threat of violence was quite high. In that, when they were finally arrested, there was a massive stockpile of weapons and arms, um, in the reserve that they had occupied. And they occupied it for over a month, um, last January to February. And the the purpose of this was a sort of expression of their Second Amendment rights, as well as an expression of their beliefs around their rights to access territory and land, basically resource resource management and their, their right to participate in that. So the Second Amendment is the right to bear arms, Yes, right? the Second yes. Amendment, for those of you who are not American, um, is the right to bear arms, which we have talked about before um, in our Feel Good episode number 23, perhaps. <laughs> yes. Um, and there's a, a complex kind of interplay here between libertarian, extreme libertarian views around... Um, the role of the citizen and the and their relationship to the federal government, um, and private enterprise, the relationship between private enterprise and land and and natural resources, and race. the The internet has done a really good job, I think, of calling out the double standard here. That if if these if these protesters hadn't been white, then there would have been a very different response to them. Um, they certainly would not have been acquitted yesterday, and chances are they wouldn't still be alive. If there had been some sort of shootout or kind of a big, you know, violent escalation at the time of the occupation, it's it's likely that a lot of the people involved wouldn't still be around to defend themselves in court. And how, following on from that, how has race played a role in the Standing Rock protests? So the Standing Rock protests are, um, they have been organized and spearheaded by Native groups, Native activists working together from, um, this is, it's, it's Sioux tribal land that is at stake here, but there has been a lot of solidarity between activists across many different tribes. Um, for a number of reasons, but also there's been a lot of support. There's been a lot of celebrity support. Mark Ruffalo has has mm. been out going viral. Um, Shailene Woodley was arrested and she live streamed. Mm. Um, this particular set of protests, because this is an ongoing, mm. it's an ongoing issue. There have been a number of different protests and different mm. protest strategies mm. used. Mm. Um, it's very much tied up in social media. The live streaming of escalation and um, kind of big events where riot police will come in, um, the recording of, of different police strategies for breaking up protests. These have all been live streamed online and have been played over and over again. And that's how the word has gotten out really mm -hmm. about this particular issue. The issue at stake is an oil pipeline. It's a proposed oil pipeline that will run through 
um, what is partially private owned land, partially tribal land, but the water resources are at risk. So water resources that affect not just the native people who live in the area, but also people who live in North Dakota generally um, would be affected by the oil pipeline if and when that pipeline were to break. Um, this is a kind of forward thinking question. This mm. is about protecting resources for the future. Very much a kind of sustainable development mindset here. Mm. It's future generations at risk, the health and the prosperity of future Americans mm. is the, um, mm. the real question. Obviously, because this is native groups who are managing this particular set of protests, they are subject to... Um, all of the sort of government responses that people of color <laughs> tend to be subject mm. to. There have been um, high-profile mass arrests in the last few weeks. There have been I mean, the use of pepper spray and mace, the use of um, helicopters and drones to survey, surveil the the different places where activists have been locating themselves. Um, just quite different mm. from the Bundy, mm. the Bundy instance. Mm. And, and the internet has done a really good job. And I don't think we would take issue with mm. the, f with the fact mm. that they're being treated differently yeah. very much because of race. Yeah. I mean, I, th I think had the, had the standing rock protesters been principally white or had the even more, perhaps markedly had the Bundys not been white, the responses would have been very different. Yeah. I think I don't think we'd, we'd disagree with that. But that's also not what we are trying to do today, right? We, yeah. We are, we are less interested in the racial aspect of this because we feel that is more, that is clearer and more obvious. Um, what do you think is the key, most interesting difference between these two? Well, because I'm a geographer... What has stood out to me here has been this question of territory and natural resources and the question of natural resource management and mm. access to land, access to resources like water, as well as the very serious question of natural resources that are principally profit-making, mm. like oil. Mm. Um, you've just made the point very clearly that... One of the key differences here is that oil is a, is hugely profitable, mm. whereas a, a wildlife refuge isn't. Mm, mm. The the land that the Bundys are after mm. and the kind of the access the Bundys want mm. doesn't have so much to do with profit and capital. Mm. An oil pipeline mm. is is a really contentious issue because mm. Mm. it has the ability to generate huge amounts of profit for private corporations. In, in other words, the the government industrial complex doesn't feel as threatened by the Bundy protests because it is easier to sweep it under the carpet and ignore it, you know. It's a bit of land in Nevada, it's a wildlife reserve in Oregon, no one, no one really cares. It doesn't make any money for a corporation. It doesn't make any money for a corporation. Um, but when it happens... When it's target, when the protest is targeted at a key contested resource, 
that can be commodified and privatized and sold, um, then suddenly it, it makes a difference. Exactly. There's something very colonial about what's happening in Standing Rock mm. that isn't necessarily the case mm. in in Oregon and in Nevada. That the, the it's I mean, and and this of course race is filtered through this, but it says in a sense it's colonized subjects, mm. non-white colonized mm. subjects, calling attention to the fact that the state is shooting itself in the foot mm. by thinking about profit in the short term mm. rather than resources mm. in the long term versus settler colonists saying, don't tax me. Mm. White settler colonists, you know, this is the, the kind of... What is always the difference between American white settler colonists in 1776 mm, signing mm, the mm, Declaration mm. of Independence mm. versus native populations resisting mm. the American government's attempts mm. to move them onto reservations and yeah so them. yeah so I mean I was that's what I was thinking while you were say, saying that that I don't know if the Bundys would phrase it in that way but they probably would think of the relationship between their them and their livelihood and the federal government as a colonial relationship. Yes. Yes, and mm. and the federal government, I mean we've we've talked about this before in the context of India mm. and the kind of the post-colonial theoretical mm. reading of mm. of the post-colonial nation state adopting or taking on the mantle of the colonial state um via, you know, just taking over management mm, of the mm, infrastructure mm, and the bureaucracy mm, and the territory, the mm, management of the land and the resources. Mm. Um, often with the same names, the government, you know, the government organizations mm, don't even change mm, their names. Mm. Um, that There is a kind of a post-colonial tension here where mm. the libertarian perspective and that mm. that particular conservative perspective sees itself as the oppressed colonists being forced mm. to pay taxes mm. for nothing. Yes. They get nothing in return. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's the whole, this is a tea party. Right? Yeah. The, you know, that's yeah. The, yeah. The, the... I mean, we... Would we... I mean, we'd probably agree that the state is oppressive. Oh, yes. But maybe not oppressing them. It's, yeah, and, and I think um, what's interesting... Mm is the rural way of life in the United Mm. States is very much under threat. And the farming industry is very much under threat. Mm. I mean, farming in the United States has been subsumed by agribusiness and and Mm. agricultural corporations. And the Bundys, you know, I would imagine they see their... (laughs) their livelihood as mm. being under threat by the government and the government's corrupt, you know, perhaps conspiratorial relationship mm. Mm. with corporations mm. um, that are looking to deny them their mm. right to mm. land and livelihood. Mm. Mm. And it's it's a fascinating perspective, really, because yeah. it's not so different mm. from a liberal mm. take on native rights to land that yeah. has been usurped by yeah. 
I mean, the the, the label I used before we turned the machine on was was anarchism, and it just yeah. It I mean the 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 discussions seem to me to be v- much more similar than one might think to you know nineteen thirty six Spain and anarchist discussions about you know collectivizing of land. Yeah. It 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 the these positions don't seem to be all that different. Yeah, and when we're talking about scale, yeah. we're talking about small-scale land management. Yeah. We're yeah. talking about um, land that can be walked mm. or, like, driven across over the course of a day and land managed mm. in mm. chunks of that size. And that's a radical reorganization of territory. Mm. And does a lot actually to challenge a kind of central federal mm. government's mm. scope yeah. and their their political power. Mm. The United States already has th- that philosophical position mm. built into its system. So the state system, the reason the United States functions in its weird federal way is because there is this sort of local... Are you using the word functions loosely at the moment? Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> temporarily, temporarily will function for the next couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Jesus. But that is, mm. there has always been this tension in the United States between the will to mimic its, you know, colonial father, mm. the British Empire, and its will to reject the centralized mm. elitist position at the center mm. managing a peripheral massive piece mm. of land mm. and i mean i think that is a feature of of the settler colony mm. because mm. you know the white settler colonists live in both mm. worlds they f- see themselves as mm. being oppressed mm. by mm. the center by the mm. metropole mm. But they themselves have been the advocates and basically the officers Mm. on behalf of that metropole Mm. oppressing Mm. the indigenous populations Mm. in the places Mm. that they've Mm. gone to. So they see themselves both as being the rightful kind of owners and managers Mm. and officers of Mm. the land Mm. while also seeing themselves as being the oppressed Mm. peoples being, you know, Mm. kicked in the face by government. Mm. And that is old. Mm. I mean, it's not that old, Mm. but it's a few hundred years old. Yes. And it characterizes very much this sort of libertarian view about territory. So is, I mean, I'm struggling a little bit to formulate in my mind. Is it, is, can we demarcate the difference, as it were, between the Tea Party right-wing, in quotation marks, libertarian, Bundy-esque, you know, the sovereign citizen movement yeah. um, world. What is the sovereign citizen movement, by the way? It's it's a loose coalition of libertarian land activists, tax activists, uh, group... Who, part of which were involved in the original Bundy standoff in Nevada about not paying grazing tax. 
So I'm struggling. Yes. I'm struggling. The interpretation yes. of the law. Yeah. According to their own mind. Yes. So so the yes so that that what characterizes them is the belief that they should only be held accountable according to their interpretation of the common law. Yeah. And nothing else. Nothing else applies. Nothing else is constitutional. Yeah. Which is a beautiful so, postmodern take, really. Yes. I mean, I, they, so so there um, there are strands of uh, certainly libertarian party thinking that says uh, things like driving licenses are unconstitutional. Yeah. Because they're not part of common yeah. law. Um, there is a weird, and I haven't thought this through at all, but there's a weird sort of literal truth of the Bible type. Aspect, aspect to, to common to to the to the interpretation of common law, I think. Yeah. But I'm struggling a little bit to conceptualize the difference between this this group and, to use my earlier example, you know, the FAI anarchist groups in who were collectivizing land in Catalonia in 1936 in Spain. Mm. Uh, who are rejecting government, rejecting both in the middle of the civil war in Spain, rejecting both the democratically elected official Republican government and the nationalist coup Franco-led yeah. uh, far-right government, and rejecting all forms of structured administration in favour of a localised collectivized communitarian use of land. Yeah. Can we is it easy to distinguish between these two approaches? I mean, I I wonder about the role of profit yeah. here. Yeah. Um the libertarian take on all of this is that you you support yourself hmm. and there's a there is a capitalist support yourself as individuals yes i mean there's hmm. a individuals and family i hmm. mean there's a there's hmm. a family hmm. <laughs> family connection here hmm. um given that we refer to this group of people as the bundies hmm. even though they aren't they aren't all bundies the the it's not necessarily collective or community organizing. Mm. It is a sort of kind of, I guess it's a sort of Rousseauian mm. take on that social contract. The, mm. That the, the individual mm. is the one who mm -hmm. has the relationship with the state. And insofar as you, you know, you connect with people... You create a little community only for the purpose of challenging the state. But ultimately it is you yourself, the individual, mm -hmm. who has responsibility f for your, I, I, your I'm life. Just, I'm, I'm just remembering um, there's a scene in the Ken Loach film Land and Freedom, which is about the Spanish Civil War, and uh, Loach does this thing which is a very Loachian thing, which is to try to make cinema out of intense, serious political debate, uh, which is a, a brave cinematic decision. Um, and he he films this um, dispute over the collectivizing of land uh, in Spain, 1936-37 Spain. 
and um, the, the there's a debate between these two characters, one of whom wants to hold on to the tiny bit of land he has because that's all he has, and he doesn't want to. He he wants to keep ownership of his land because he can, you know, he can grow grow enough for his himself and his family, um, and everyone else who believes that the village as a whole would be better off if all the land was collectivized. They all farmed the land together and shared whatever the output that was grown out of it. And I wonder if it's it's an individual collective division between... Yeah, which is a question of scale. Yes. And it seems to me that the Standing Rock case, hmm. leaving race hmm. where it is, hmm. a lot of the concern is a concern for community. It's a mm. concern for everyone who lives mm. in the area. Mm. And it is a concern for for the collective. Yes, it does. But then I'm also, you know, playing devil's advocate. Like, you know, we talked about the sovereign citizen movement. It is a movement, you know. There are people who are not directly related to the Bundys who are, don't live in Nevada went and you know, they would argue in solidarity. Yeah, and the, the Bundys themselves that, called yes. for people to come yes. join them in their so, protest. So it's not that, like, that's not a collective community either. I wonder if, it, I mean, it has to do with the resources themselves. Yeah. It has to do with the management of the land itself, mm. not the way that the organizing happens. It's the narrative about yes. the purpose of the land and this, it is a, it's an, it's not, I don't want to call it an ideology because the, it, it's, but it is about the kind of geographical construction of a, a set of myths or imaginations about the land and the territory. I mean, it's the, it's collective in the sense that, you know, the, the cliche about circling the wagons. Yes. Right? It's that, isn't it? It's that. Yes. It's we'll get together because we have to fight this common enemy. But once we've fought the common enemy, your land is your land and you yeah. get to decide. And once we get to California yeah. or to Oregon, yeah. I'm picking my spot. Yes, yeah. And I'm going to build my homestead. Yes. Yes. And it's my homestead. Yes. And I'm going to use my shotgun to yeah. defend it. Yeah. And th that is... And if your homestead is attacked, I will come and help you defend. Yes. Because I know that if I don't defend, help you defend your homestead, my, my, mine might be attacked as well. Yeah. But, but we're not going to share our homestead. Yes. We're yeah. not going to create a commune yes. and share our wives yeah. and have our kids work on each other's land. Yeah. There isn't that. It's it, You work together, but mm. everyone has their own their own ter piece of yes. territory, yes. their own piece yes. of the resources. Yes. And it's, which is a very different take mm. on the narrative about water yeah. and oil. Mm. There is a sort of belief that the, that the profit that will be generated by the oil pipeline won't ever be filtered back mm. to the communities that yeah. it affects, which yeah. is abs absolutely true. Yeah. Um, and a, a, a perfectly valid mm. criticism mm. and complaint. Um, but the the overarching idea about mm. the land yeah. on which the pipeline mm. will be built and specifically the water mm. resources that are at stake, mm. those water resources cannot be divvied up based on an individual 
You, you can't mm. divide them up and say each person should own and manage these this amount of water because water doesn't work like that. No, but except it does, though. Like, before we turned the machine on, we were talking about Flint, Michigan. And, the the you know, for those of you who haven't been following the story, uh, a long, long, very long saga about... Um, water being polluted and contaminated in Flint. Most of Flint water is now uh, hugely contaminated with lead. And it all started because the authorities in Flint decided that the amount of money that Flint was paying Detroit for its water supply was too high. So you have these two cities in the same state, and one city was having to pay another city for its water supply. So water... is actually being divided up. But not on an individual level. No. We're talking about cities. Yes. The scale question here is it's very specific and it's it's relevant. Mm. It matters. So mm. in California, right? Mm. Southern California. California's had a drought yeah. for years and years yes. and years. Technically, California is out of its drought, but in terms of the effects, mm. California mm. is still mm. in the midst of a drought. The southern half of the state mm. has always... Mm pulled all of its water from Northern California and and beyond, up Oregon and, and Washington mm. and Canada, mm. because the southern half of the state is a desert. Mm. And I'm not, like, that's not an, an exaggeration. Mm. Southern California is genuinely a desert. And L.A. was built on mm. top of a desert. And during the drought, Northern California, mm. Northern Californians had this narrative that they believe very strongly, that they were following water quotas, they were letting their their lawns go brown. They were re-landscaping their mm. gardens if they could mm. afford to do so and putting in desert plants. Mm. They were being extremely conscientious about where their water was coming from and how they were using mm. it. And meanwhile, Southern California made no changes mm. and were joining the aquifer under the state, which will have, of course, really serious mm. effects, right? Sinkholes and when the earthquake mm. happens, mm. you know, and it's a, it's a question of collective water. Mm. And as much as we try and pipe water in and charge, charge households mm. individually for their water usage and try and make water mm-hmm. an individual, mm. as individual a resource as possible, mm. it doesn't function like a plot of land in no. the sense that you can't put boundaries on yes. water because the, the chemical and physical nature of mm. water means mm. that it doesn't work like land. And it doesn't... And and that is, is a part of this narrative that is a, a part of this protest. Water mm. cannot be protected in the mm. way that a homestead mm. can be protected. As, as the water dispute between India and Pakistan suggests. Yes. 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 I mean, yes. well, y- you know, our, our, our colleague and mm. wonderful academic Dan Haynes mm. has made his early career mm. describing and theorizing and studying mm. and examining mm. how water doesn't follow mm. territorial boundaries. Yes. No matter what geographers mm. in the late 19th and early 20th centuries wanted to mm. believe about mm. rivers. Mm. And that is, you know, this is a, a question about how we describe an individual's rights mm to resources, to natural resources, whether it's land or water, and how those rights are filtered through or administered by the state. And corporations. And Yeah, 
which yeah. is, you know, they are the, yeah. the unsung villains here. Yeah. Really, the yeah. relationship between the oil yeah. companies and the government. I'm not sure what else to say about this, other than that it is, it's an ongoing issue. Solidarity to mm. the people at Standing Rock. Yeah. I mean, I, the, the, there's lots more we could say. We might do future episodes on this. I'm, while you were talking about sort of Mark Buffalo and this, yeah, this sort of interesting celebrity politics to do with protests. Yeah, which I think could be could be an interesting future episode. But um, yeah, I think um, it is interesting that. Certainly, all the coverage I've seen so far on social media has been understandably about about race, but the which the is use huge, of, you it's know. huge. But the use of land and and the commodification of land and water as as resources, which can then be privatized or not, sold or not, um, and sort of differentially used, is yeah. fascinating. There's also the question of, um, I mean, the the wildlife refuge mm. and the grazing lands are federal land. Mm. One of the kind of big um, criticisms of the Standing Rock protests is that they're dealing with private land. Mm, mm, mm. And citizens don't have rights mm. to private land in the way that they have rights mm. to federal mm, land. Mm. Which, to me, is fascinating mm. that the the corporation mm, mm. versus the citizen mm. is just such a, I mean, we know because mm. we, we think in these terms, but the fact that it's so clear that mm. corporations mm. have greater access to land mm. and resources mm. than individuals. Yeah. I, th I think it's fascinating as well that the, the second, second lot of Bundy protests happened in the wildlife Refuge, yeah, because that's commodifying resource in a very specific, non apparently non marketable way, right? Yeah. So the the concept of a wild wildlife refuge is that this is worth protecting because it is important, not because it can be sold. Yes. Um, and challenging that, as opposed to a pipeline on the part of the Bundys, suggests something about their political position that y you you get the sense that they wouldn't mind if all the wood was chopped off and all the animals killed as long as they had ownership of whatever was theirs as it were yeah or that they could use it to manage yeah. themselves because presumably they know how to manage grazing land what is i mean that's it there's there's a a bigger trend mm. in rural conservative politics here that mm. is about um the a backlash to conservation yeah and there is a real, mm. genuine concern mm. here that mm. rural livelihoods are destroyed by conservation. Mm. Obviously, for you and I, mm. actually rural livelihoods are destroyed by corporations yeah. and by corporate greed and, and globalization. As in Standing Rock. Where, exactly. I mean, conservationists, conservationists are challenging that as well for understandable reasons, right? Yes. Yes. But the... The there is a, a narrative of of protecting mm. habitats and ecosystems mm. that have been for 
sometimes for very, very long periods of time, been the sole livelihoods mm, mm, of mm. of people who live in rural areas. I mean, this was a huge narrative in Brexit. The, yes, the uh, that's fishermen, exactly what I was thinking. Right, the, the fishermen in the Isles mm. in Scotland mm. were very pro-Brexit because yeah. they believed that they themselves had... Mm. That they could manage their mm. fishing waters mm. better than the European Union, yeah. and that is a, a quite a common narrative about rural land. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's it's anti centralization. It's a conservative anti centralization argument, right? That you don't need national services, you don't need national standards. You you know, I know how best to live my life, and the government needs to back out and. But there's also the belief, right, the fishermen say, you know, we feed Scotland. Mm. You know, where do you think your fish comes from? Mm. And, you know, cattle ranchers say, where do you think your beef comes from? Mm. You know, and, and people in rural areas, where do you think your food comes from? You know, this, mm. this kind mm. of, um, why do people in cities mm. where government facilities and politicians mm. are located believe that they can better manage yeah. the land? Mm. Because we're the ones who feed them. Mm. And there is a, you know, it's a, it's not an incorrect no. take. It's mm. just that actually what's happening is a process of globalization, which is being um, exploited by corporations mm. and they're being serviced by national and, government. And, and, and corporations which are perfectly able to appropriate this notion of better local management yeah. so you know like you can go to tesco now and pick up a box of strawberries and on the strawberries it tells you the name of the farmer yeah as if that is or, or you know a, a few years ago there was a, a quite a famous horse meat scandal where yeah. um where you know ready meals were found to contain traces of horse meat yeah the Findus lasagna yes and um tesco's response to this was to put up huge posters. I remember going into a Tesco two days afterwards or whatever, and they had huge posters saying, all our food contains only British beef. And I remember thinking, the problem wasn't that you were giving us foreign beef. The problem was that you were giving us horse and calling it beef. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it, it's appropriating this sort of, you know, the the local... And we've, I think we've spoken about this before, about our, our ambivalence towards sort of the local organic slow food. Yes, world. we have with the sugar tax. Yes. I think um, the elitist and, yes, and, and the elitist positions there. Um, but it is also true that the the notion that rural communities are the best to manage their own resources is something that corporations can appropriate and then exploit yes yes yeah. it's a it's a double bind really yeah it's difficult too i mean when you talk about native populations mm. some of the kind of liberal progressive rhetoric has been about um the native activists and the sioux tribe being stewards of the land mm, and, mm. um, you know, to hear white people say that kind of thing, it's to a certain extent, there's a bit of allyship, but yes. also it's a bit, you know, for white people who love their, love their yoga and 
love their native style moccasins and things. You know, it's it it feels a bit you want to disingenuous. You, you, know? wa you want to bulk order copies of Orientalism and just hand them around. Yeah, and just, and you know, native away. populations have had to certainly have have a very long history with the land mm. and have always been very critical of the way that that the US government and the state governments have managed their mm. land. They've also had to come up with creative and new ways of managing what little land they've been given and in But also like difficult. I don't know this might be a controversial position to take, but you sort of think like sh shouldn't we allow Native American populations the agency to try to mess up and to exploit land in the... Do, do, do you see what I mean? Like, yeah. the, the the sense that... I mean, I guess one of my problems with this, the, the whole stewardship argument is... It, it, I mean, it, you know, the, the romanticizing of it, right? The, yes. the, the setting up of particular marginalized populations as... and holding them to higher standards than we hold everyone else to. Yes, because once they mess up, yeah. if they're subject to, you know, some really difficult negotiation yeah. where they have yeah. to, you know, where yeah. a mm. group of people in charge mm. of managing resources yeah. have to negotiate with a corporation mm. or have yeah. to negotiate with a government, which yeah. of course is always the case, yeah. then who's to blame? Yeah. Never the government. No. It's always the native people who've sold out or they're mm. corrupt or they're not representing their people. Yes. It's a... You know, it sets it sets everybody up for racism. Not un, not unlike corruption in post-colonial Asia and Africa. Yes. You know. Well, corruption we, is endemic. No, I mean we. You know, like we we told them that they wouldn't be able to. They aren't fit to rule their country, <laughs> and countries are now they're showing it. So we have to go in and decide for them because you know. Corruption is endemic in those societies. Yes. Don't you know? No. This is not Britain or America. This, this is Britain or America. We do, this is not the sort of thing we do. Anyway, um, I think we're done. Yeah, we've hit most, we've of, hit our most of our points. Um, I hope that was of interest. Let us know. Um, tweet at us. Um, send us your thoughts. And we will catch you next time. Maybe next week. Yeah, next week. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> um, thanks a lot. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick. And I have been Anindya Richardry. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz. And me at Dr. Anindya R. Our music was provided by the Agrarians, and this has been the State of the Theory. Thank you. Where would we be?